We're back speaking with Peter Buxton, whistleblower of note in the notorious Tuskegee study. Well, Peter, you did succeed, or we wouldn't be having this conversation. There wouldn't be a book, and this wouldn't be a, uh, a notorious episode of American history. How did you get this story out? Well, it took me six and a half years. I complained first through that report I handed in saying, this is something that should not be happening. This is against all of the dictates and the medical standards of the type of care given in public health. This is a shame and should not be happening. And at the same time I turned in the report, I sent a personal letter return receipt requested to the head of the program uh, in the CDC in Atlanta, Georgia, a doctor named Dr. Brown. And just a few feet away in a filing cabinet here, I have his signed receipt for my letter. And I said, I think you should stop this study. And uh, my response was dead silence for a month and a half or two. And then a, another public health service officer, whom I knew vaguely, he'd been here for a number of years in the Bay Area, but then he was brought back to CDC in Atlanta to work there. He was getting ready to retire, but he had family in Berkeley. And because he was coming out for Christmas, Dr. Brown asked him to talk to me as some sort of a weird character find out what this man wants he sent this weird letter i don't know what he wants to do who is this man and how how dare he uh this very kind gentleman in his late 60s getting ready to retire came and uh i i met with him in one of our offices and he said well what is it you want and so i had to explain to him and he wrote down very carefully on a notepad what I said, all this to report back to Dr. Brown. And he left, and my colleagues said, well, when they fire you, don't mention me. I, I like this job. And a number of people, including my boss, said that. And nothing happened. And then the head of the clinic, who was a San Francisco doctor, uh, as part of the San Francisco Department of Public Health, came up to me, and he was somebody who was normally very quiet-spoken, and he didn't say much, but when he did, you'd have to answer, and you had to be very careful because we all knew he had a very explosive temper. And he went up to me and he said, what's this about you writing to CDC? And I said, look, this is a problem. And he said, do you have any documents? And I said, I've got a lot of them. I'll you know, he said he wanted to see them. I brought him in the next day, and he read them over a weekend on his boat out on the bay, I think. And um, then he came up to me the next morning furious. His face was red, and he thrust them back at me, sort of jammed them into my chest, and he said, here, look at this. And he pointed to one page, and he said, these men are all volunteers. It says so on this page. Wow. And he turned around and walked away. He didn't talk to me for a week, <laughs> I guess. Well, I know somebody in the media finally listened to you because this, uh, this became the national news story. How did that go down? Well, it was a mess. It was, there were some mistakes involved. 
I spent six and a half years trying to get people to listen to me. I, I once sat having pizza, a group of us, uh, you know, 10 or 15 of us went out to, uh, to dinner at a pizza place one night, and there were two reporters from the Chronicle sitting opposite me, and I started to st tell them the story, and they said, hey, look, pal, we work with the news all the time. We're sick of it. We want to have a good time and eat our pizza. And they didn't realize that they were turning their back on a Pulitzer Prize nomination for investigative reporting. That didn't work out right. Why do I say that? Because one of the other people who was part of this group of men and women, we all ran around together. The group was centered around about 10 young women who'd graduated from Stanford together, and a number of them were roommates here in the city, and we all just hung around together. There was a little bit of dating, but most of us were just buddies. And one of them had been hired to be a reporter by the Associated Press. She'd gone back to New York and Washington for about six months of training and then came back here, was assigned here. And I told her about it and she didn't pay any attention. But a, a week or two later, I saw her again and told her again and suddenly she listened. What? All black men with syphilis? What? Guinea pigs? And then she thought for a minute and she said, well, do you have any documents. I said, I've got a whole brown manila envelope full of them. Do you want to see them? Let's leave here right now. We'd already had dinner. And I said, I'll, I'll take you and show you my files. And, and she sat down on the couch and I handed her the files and she read and read. And she said, could I Xerox these? And I said, I wish you would. <laughs> and she did. And then she showed it to her boss, and he said, well, this is a major story, but you can't write it. Why not? Well, you've only been hired six months. You have to package these Xeroxes up and send them to somebody senior. She knew one person in Washington, in Washington or New York. Can't remember where she was now at the time. And that brown manila envelope landed on the second uh, AP reporter's desk at a time when they were chasing a political sex scandal. A married senator uh, in his 40s had been caught on a yacht in the Potomac over a weekend when he said he was doing something else uh, with other people. And that was a red-hot story until she opened that envelope. She had finished for a couple of days, you know, following this red hot story. And then she opened it up and thought, oh, my God, made a few phone calls to the CDC and to a few of the doctors mentioned and found out, my God, this is true. And she wrote the story her way. And it was the uh, lead story on the front page of the New York Times the next morning. And it just blew the whole story wide open. The administration then. I think was the Nixon administration, and they were forced to immediately take action. Did they halt the study promptly? Oh, yes, but the, they had to do more than that. They had to be able to say, we're going to prevent this from happening in the future. Well, how did they do that? Well, they immediately set up a new bureaucracy. That's the way things are done in Washington. This is a bureaucracy that not one American in a hundred knows about. It's still around today. Which is? Institutional review boards, which are 
to some doctors an absolute plague to other people, oh yes, if it wasn't for them, we would be having more Tuskegee's. And if you dig around a little bit, you'll find out there are lots of Tuskegee's here in this country, uh, paid for by American money overseas. What's that about? Well, doing medical studies for development of new medications uh, by major American and international uh, drug uh, pharmaceutical manufacturers, they'll go to India if they have to, and yeah. they will get people who will allow themselves to be used for money. On another day, Peter, we should probably talk about what was done in the way of germ warfare, and it's still being done, but not, but not today. So you, this, this became an explosive news story. I remember this very, very well when it happened. Congressional, Congress called the hearings, and, and people can go on the web and see pictures of you testifying before Congress, and I guess it was Ted Kennedy's committee, and uh, there's pictures of you with Ted Kennedy, and I guess he, he came to the forefront of this? Well, now, wait a minute. I, I know about these uh, things uh, that were uh, about germ warfare and all of that. I did not get involved in that with the Tuskegee study, but I did get involved because half a block from where you and I are sitting right now is a house that was taken over by the CIA and run as a brothel to test LSD on young men, preferably the age and size and weight of a Russian soldier. Here, here's a free drink. And through that Holy mirror mackerel. over there, that's a two-way glass mirror. There's a guy with a camera, and he's going to film this guy after he drinks his free drink. Well, that, I can tell you right now, is going to be a future episode of this program. <laughs> but, uh, holy mackerel. But, but you did, th this was a national news story, and... Well, once this hits the cover of the New York Times and congressional hearings are, are being called, you find yourself at the center of this. What, what was that like? Well, uh, everybody wants to shake your hand and, and slap you on the back and tell you what a nice guy you are. And then they go, go and talk to the other people in the room about the business of Washington. That's the nature of Washington. But there's something else. When you become that sort of figure, other stories land in your lap, and I can tell you a, a number of things about radiation experiments, a number of things that have happened here in San Francisco with radiation, are still going on with radiation in San Francisco, affecting real estate that's being sold here in San Francisco, and other stories of that sort, including experiments with germ warfare, that were done supposedly with an uh, innocuous disease called Serratia marsens, and um, it actually wound up killing people. Uh, they didn't want to kill people. They, it's, uh, Serratia marsens is a uh, reportable disease. They wanted to put a footprint down and see around the Bay Area where doctors suddenly started reporting that disease. Well, unfortunately, they also started reporting deaths of neonatal, in other newborn children. And elderly people suddenly started dying of that disease. There was a sudden spike in it that went away. And... The public health people didn't know where it came from. Well, it came off an American naval ship that was going around in circles off the Golden Gate Bridge when the breeze was coming. I've read of this. I guess this is our friends at the CIA that were behind this. 
Uh, it wasn't just the CIA, it was the U.S. Army as much as anything else. Uh, you know, who all is involved, I'd have to go back and read my books on it. Uh, there is one book that you can find that's, I think, uh, in libraries still called A Higher Form of Killing. That was a term used by military in after World War I, World War II, uh, because people said, well, you know, do you want to see people blown up by high explosives or would you rather see them die in a few hours of a disease? Well, that's not a choice that a humane human being wants to make. Well, Peter, in the wake of this hitting the international news media, congressional hearings, the, the huge public outcry, I think it's safe to say that, uh, well, I hope it's safe to say we'll never see a Tuskegee uh, study again. As a medical doctor, for your efforts in this, I just want to say thank you. Thank you, Doug. Our thanks to Peter Buxton for a most interesting chat. We hope he'll be back again in the future sometime soon. This program was produced by Edward McMillan. You have been listening to Radio Parallax. I'm Douglas Everett. We expect on next week's show to speak to our old pal, Dr. Gary Aguilar, about some newfound anatomy of the eye and also some of the medical mysteries still surrounding the death of our 35th president. We'll see you then. 